My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. And welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Daniel Tsegai and Daniel Vexel. Increasingly, border and citizenship regimes have become mechanisms through which marginalized populations are produced and controlled. One outcome of this in Canada is that more and more people, mostly people of color from the Global South, are forced into situations of lacking immigration documentation, also described as being without status, which makes them highly vulnerable to various forms of state sanction, including deportation. Part of what is so fraught about living without status is the ever-present risk that you'll just be going about your life, working at your job, existing as part of your community, and something will happen that will bring you to the attention of the Canada Border Services Agency, or CBSA, who may then detain you, turn your life upside down, terrorize your family, and send you out of the country. This can happen, for instance, when accessing social and health services of various kinds, and many undocumented people avoid such services as a consequence, even though they often pay taxes that contribute to making such services possible. Or, of direct relevance to today's show, it can happen if you're taking public transit home from work, you get racially profiled by transit police, and they turn you over to the CBSA. That happened to Vancouver hotel worker Lucia Vega Jimenez. She later committed suicide in an immigration detention center. Organizers with the No One Is Illegal group in that city decided they needed to know more about what led to this tragedy, and their digging uncovered an extensive record of collaboration between the Vancouver Area Transit Police and the CBSA that was effectively turning the public transit system into a border checkpoint. This work eventually brought together folks from No One Is Illegal with other migrant justice organizers in a campaign called Transportation Not Deportation. In the same spirit as those campaigns in cities around the continent which have carved out places of sanctuary, solidarity, and safety for undocumented people in various kinds of urgently needed services, Transportation Not Deportation's focus is a push to make public transit a place of safety for people regardless of migration status. And, recently, they won an important victory when the transit police formally cancelled the Memorandum of Understanding they had signed with the CBSA, the existence of which they had earlier denied. It's unclear how far this victory goes, and more organizing is definitely required, but it is an important win on the path to creating and expanding spaces of safety and, ultimately, real justice for migrants on Turtle Island. Segai and Vexel spoke with me about the origins of the campaign, what they did to build its momentum, the recent victory, and the struggles still ahead. We spoke by Skype to phone from Vancouver. My name is Daniel Vexel, and I'm involved with the Transportation Not Deportation campaign and just generally a concerned community member who, for that very reason, got involved with this campaign and have been involved with other social justice issues over the years. The Transportation Not Deportation campaign just so happened that I was looking for something to get involved in um, when one of the community meetings was announced on the No One is Illegal listserv, and so I got involved by that route. 
the campaign itself is working towards trying to end the collaboration between the Canadian Border Services Agency, the CBSA, and the Transit Police in Vancouver. The Vancouver area has the distinction of having the only separate armed transit police force in Canada. And my name is Daniel Plagai. I am a member of No One is Illegal Unceded Coast Salish Territories. In December of 2013, Lucia Vega Jimenez, an undocumented migrant worker in a hotel, was picked up by transit police at the Main Street Skytrain station. She was stopped by transit police. She didn't have proof of fare, and being undocumented, she didn't have ID that they would have recognized. So she didn't provide proof of ID. She was asked for her name. They looked up her name in two databases, police databases, provincial and federal. She didn't come up. They asked again, who are you? We need proof of ID. We need to know who you are. She, at this point, did provide a Mexican ID card, which did have a picture of her. At that point, it should have been the end of it because transit police themselves claim that all they really want is proof of identification so that they can issue a derivation ticket. So they received it at that point. They had her Mexican ID card, but they had still referred her to the CBSA. One of the police officers said later, and we found this out in the inquest, that it was due to her accent that he assumed that she may be undocumented. So he racially profiled her passed her over to the CBSA. They discovered that she wasn't documented. It was just a few days immediately after that she was put in immigration detention. And I would say about a week and a half later, within two weeks, I believe, she committed suicide. This was yet another case of a migrant who, to no fault of her own, didn't have permanent status. She would have liked permanent status, we're assuming. She was being excluded based on a very unjust system, a system which is making it more difficult for people to gain permanent residency. So she's, you know, stuck between a rock and a hard place, essentially. And she was put in a situation where she couldn't gain permanent residency. And then once she's here working, uh, attempting to make a living, she's on public transportation, an area that we think should be a sanctuary for people. She was picked up and threatened with something as serious as deportation and before that, detainment. So for us, it was a situation that brought up a lot of conditions and problems that we've been discussing and uh, trying to organize around. A number of months later, there was an inquest where we learned quite a bit about the details of how she was picked up and how she was essentially racially profiled and given over to the CBSA. And that was the origins of the transportation and deportation campaign. At that point, we came to a decision that we really did need to look into the role of transit police in furthering or enforcing immigration policy. And that's when we began doing our research and we found out just how deep the collaboration between transit police and CBSA was. And tell me about the process from the tragic events of that case to the point of the transportation, not deportation campaign being launched. The initial point was First, just trying to find out exactly what was the process or what were the justifications for transit police to refer Lucia to the CBSA in the first place. There were a lot of details or essentially like their protocols, how they use their databases, at what point or how quickly do they refer people to the CBSA. I think we were under the impression that that was considered a last resort, but from what we could tell, it looked like it was used pretty quickly, even when there were other methods of identifying her. As I mentioned, she did have Mexican ID. 
So initially, I think we just wanted to understand what is the process transit police are using to refer primarily people of color to the CBSA. And the more we understood that, the more it became very obvious to us that racial profiling was a huge component of their working and that the collaboration between transit police and CBSA was much deeper than was ever let on. And I think around that point was when it just kind of emerged organically that a campaign around this had to happen. There were actually quite a few private meetings, just a few of us, about a handful of us, just doing the research. We were requesting a lot of AFIPs, Freedom of Information Privacy Requests, and getting a certain amount of knowledge base about the internal working of the transit police and the extent of their collaboration with the CBSA. So there was quite a bit of that right at the beginning. That was actually a few months of just learning what they've been doing internally and what the process is. It was a couple months in. That's when we had a more public meeting, a community meeting, to see who would be interested in getting on board and maybe figuring out how we organize around this. Not too long after that, we published an article. We organized the vigil. And before then, there was quite a bit of media. So our position on the issue was crystallizing. So we're getting that info out. And then we put out a petition with demands, which we got out to quite a few people. More than 1,500 people have signed it. And more than 40 organizations have endorsed it. So tell me in a bit more detail about the character and extent of the collaboration between the Transit Police and the CBSA. As was uncovered through a lot of documents that were provided through the ATIPs that were made, the collaboration between the two organizations was actually quite extensive and more extensive than it had been previously thought as far as the training that was provided to the transit police. We were able to get a slideshow that the CBSA had given in training to transit police and the memorandum of understanding and just generally the definition as explicitly as it was made that the success of their collaboration would be measured by the number of referrals that were made from the transit police to CBSA. And so it's difficult in a certain regard to balance what we see there through these documents and what is said by the police and meetings that have been had between them, because, of course, they're putting up a very different front and can be seen through the documents. But at the same time, the documents only tell something through numbers rather than through an experience. But it definitely was a very extensive collaboration between these two organizations, whatever the line that the transit police gave to us in meetings, which was proven false by these ATIPs after they were received. And based on the documents that you received, I mean, it, it seems evident what the CBSA got out of it. They got additional agents that were enforcing the kinds of things that they try to enforce. What did the transit police, as an organization, as an institution, get out of this collaboration? That's a very good question. I don't think we know. I definitely don't know. I mean, we can get a little more philosophical and get into the nature of the police and its role in perpetuating enforcement of a class of people, migrants, people of color, who the state as a whole would prefer to make fearful and precarious and on guard and contained. But I mean, that's just in a broad sense. On a more specific, I'm not sure. It's definitely difficult to see what expending more of their resources to do something that isn't specifically under their purview to do what that would accomplish for them. 
I wonder, in part, if it may have something to do with the legitimization that it would grant to the transit police, which kind of within the region, not only in the public, but even among other police forces is seen as not a real police force and is kind of laughed at in a certain way. So it could potentially have given an opportunity for the transit police to prove themselves in a certain way within these laws and opportunities that are provided to them to become another instrument of these oppressive systems in a way that all the other police forces are. And so it would legitimize them in that regard. But I mean, that's really only one guess at what it could possibly be. I'm with Daniel, that there's really no way to say exactly what it could be at this point that they get out of it. And you said that one of the first steps was that the campaign published an article about the issue. Where was that published and what was the general thrust of the article? That was published in Ricochet. And the main thrust was really clarifying the exact process, like what you might experience if you are undocumented or actually not even undocumented, but a, a person of color who is subject to racial profiling and may not have your ID with you, what would you face, what would you experience that would be different from a person who is not typically subject to racial profiling, and how that is institutionalized through the collaboration between transit police and CBSA, and applying that and showing how it explains exactly what happened to Lucia. And you mentioned a vigil. That was specifically a memorial for Lucia Vega Jimenez? Yeah, it was a memorial for her to commemorate her life and her death within an immigration detention system. And to also use that opportunity to bring out this broader discussion of the collaboration between the two organizations. There were a few speakers. I spoke. Omar Chu is kind of the MC and he spoke. He's been part of the campaign from the beginning as well. Daisy Cheng, I believe her last name is, spoke, gave a very moving speech about the rise of police control and police brutality in North America, situating the situation of Sierra Vega Jimenez within that context. There was a choir who sang very beautifully, and there were also a few other speakers. The general thrust of the discussion or of the event of the vigil was to, as we've been saying, highlighting the regrettable collaboration between CBSA and transit police and reiterating that public transportation is not a border checkpoint, that public transportation should be accessible to all, whatever their status may be. What has the campaign done since then to build the momentum that turned into this recent victory? There was definitely some general community organizing and I don't want to say consciousness raising, but just spreading information and awareness of this injustice of the collaboration whether that be through leafleting at transit stations in the Vancouver area and gathering of the petition signatures that I think amounted to about 1,500, as Daniel said, and also getting other organizations to sign on in support of the campaign. As well, there were some meetings that were happening, not in negotiation, but only to be in dialogue, I suppose, with the transit police services. Someone reached out to someone who was involved in the campaign, and so there were some meetings that were happening as the community was being organized, and there were also just general community meetings to discuss strategy. There were some very effective memes that were created and put online, which put some wonderful pressure with some amazing graphics. In the leafleting, in the petitioning, what kinds of conversations did you have with ordinary transit riders when you talked to them about the issue? I had the pleasure of doing some canvassing and heard a diversity of voices. There were, of course, very many people who felt that 
this is a situation of quote-unquote illegals coming to Canada and hoping to ride public transportation or access various services, which they believe are kind of given to them as something they should be grateful for, essentially. I suppose they see these migrants as kind of escaping some kind of deserved punishment, punishment being deportation, and essentially saying, hey, if they shouldn't be here, if they don't have legal status, why would you do anything that would stop transit police from facilitating their deportation? They see the system as essentially just, and anything that would get in the way of their deportation by transit police is just something that didn't make a whole lot of sense to them. So there were a lot of people like that, and canvassers in general really tried to clear up some of the implications and show that there's some real problems with the immigration system right now and that there are a lot of people who are undocumented despite the fact that they want to have permanent residency and that they've been trying that there's a system that is making it more difficult, increasingly difficult for them to gain permanent residency. There were quite a few people like that, but there were also a lot of people who understood that there's something wrong about transit police going on public transportation and doing the work of immigration enforcement. They claim they're there to just check fares and enforce fare evasion and promote public safety, maybe on public transportation. But evidence shows that a big part of their work is enforcing immigration policies. So I think a lot of people thought there's just something very wrong about that. So we got a lot of positive feedback there. And we, as I mentioned, we did get a lot of signatures for a reason. You mentioned that in that period, you also had a few meetings with representatives of the transit police. What kinds of things were you hearing from them at that point? It seemed to a certain degree that the approach was almost damage control in a certain regard. Like they were trying to work with us, but at the same time, channel our efforts into the lesser demands that we had. There was a lot of focus on identification rather than trying to end the memorandum of understanding, which originally they did not existed, or to end racial profiling, which they continue to deny exist to try and expand the scope of the identification that would be accepted by transit police if someone were stopped for fare evasion, which, while important and is something that we're going to continue to be working on, of course doesn't get to the meat of these issues. It's, as we were saying, not the primary demand that we have. And so there was a lot of the discussion orbiting around that issue and, and trying to take the attention away from the other issues, which most people who were involved in the campaign and involved with sanctuary efforts in Vancouver felt were more important and substantive. Tell me about the substance of the victory. What does it mean that this memorandum of understanding has been canceled? That's something we're trying to figure out as well. So just to be clear, they claim they will scrap the memorandum of understanding. They promised that police officers who are intent on referring someone to the CBSA will first need permission from a watch commander, who's essentially a supervisor. And they are saying that the transit police will not detain someone who, after referring them to the CBSA, they find out they're undocumented. But if they didn't actually have a warrant out, if essentially they were undocumented but the CBSA wasn't aware, the transit police have now promised that they will not hold those people. So these are important concessions, and there's a lot we can hold them to. But what it means, that's something that'll really depend on how they define these concessions. For instance, with the uh, not holding someone who doesn't have a warrant, it's also very possible that they will share their information, personal information with the CBSA. So they may not hold somebody, but if they've given CBSA their address and their name, it's the difference between being picked up by the CBSA today or in a few days. 
So it only delays the situation rather than prevents it. So what it means will really depend on how transit police defines us. And it'll also depend on what we do as a follow-up. We need to continue putting pressure on the transit police, continue mobilizing people, continue making many people aware of the situation so that there is a citywide and mass movement or mass of people who are putting that kind of pressure, public pressure on transit police to actually follow through on these concessions in a way that shows a quantifiable difference in the number of people who are referred to the CBSN. And presumably this victory means that some of the things that you're demanding seem like they're going to be met or hopefully are going to be met, while as other things are still outstanding. Tell me about the demands that the campaign has that this doesn't address. Probably the demand that is most obviously unmet is that we demanded that all racial profiling be ended on the transit system, which, of course, this doesn't necessarily do anything to change to end. I can't remember who it was exactly. I know the person who was involved who said that now people who are undocumented get to be as maltreated as everyone else on the transit system who are otherwise racially profiled and profiled for their class. They'll face those same issues. Now it's just they may not have the same fear of being potentially deported if they're undocumented. Of course, that's very important, but at the same time, it doesn't quite get to another systemic factor within what we're struggling against. Tell me what you can. I mean, you're probably still having conversations about it, but tell me what you can about how the campaign plans to push forward in terms of advancing these demands. I'm really interested in building a mass movement and making a lot of people very aware of this situation, of the extent of the collaboration and why this is a problem and that there's a lot of power that people have to actually exert a lot of pressure on the transit police to make changes that align with their interests or their beliefs about public transportation and other social services being sanctuaries for people, whatever their status may be. So one thing I'm interested in is just getting out there, getting on the streets, talking to people, canvassing, getting people to sign petitions, getting them to come to events, raising that consciousness and building that mass of mobilized people. There are also still so many things that we need clarified and we need to understand. We actually don't know what is their process. Like if they simply don't detain someone, are they passing information on to the CBSA? This and many other questions have come up for us because we just don't know the actual protocols for transit police. So there's a lot more for us to learn. And are there currently other sanctuary-focused campaigns going on in Vancouver? There's a group called Sanctuary Health, of which one of the members of Transportation on Deportation is a part of. They are extending the struggle for a sanctuary city, a true sanctuary city, not just a city that is a sanctuary in policy or in name and not in practice in its diverse communities or in parts of the city. From my understanding, Sanctuary Health is looking to make real grassroots pockets of sanctuary. And I think that spirit of uh, creating sanctuary city is a part of transportation on deportation as well. I think we see ourselves in line with all that. And paint a picture for me of the role that you see of local struggles to expand spaces of safety, whether it's in you know the health campaign you mentioned or whether it's transportation, not deportation. What role do those focused campaigns have in a broader vision of migrant justice? 
That's a very good question. And I think a question that has kind of a multifaceted answer, because I think that any progress in one area can help to buttress progress in other areas and support making progress in other areas. I mean, certainly just on a very personal basis for the people who can now safely engage more so in the public sphere, if taking the train every time does not necessarily strike the fear into you that you may be facing deportation if you're caught without a fare, then you may be more likely to get involved organizing, to have a sanctuary city, to have sanctuary services makes it more possible for you to be involved within civil society without the fear that if the surveillance state or if any armor of any institution is going to come after you, have another means of accessing you and your information that in and of itself can help to reinforce these efforts and to make it safer for people to get involved. So I think that victory in one area can help to support victories in other areas. And tell me about the relationships that transportation, not deportation, has with other social justice groups and organizations and campaigns in the city. We have over 40 organizations who've signed on, and pretty much everyone we asked signed on, endorsed, and enthusiastically. They didn't just endorse, but they promoted the campaign, sent out the petition to their email list, put it on their Facebook page, came out with us to events, really vocally and in real practical sense, supported the demands of the campaign. So there's a broad alignment, deep connections between this campaign and many other struggles within the city, whether they are struggles against criminalization of low-income people in the downtown east side. We're seeing a lot of racial profiling there. We're seeing primarily indigenous people profiled and criminalized for incredibly trivial things like jaywalking or street vending. And there's groups like, for instance, Bandu, the Vancouver area network of drug users. That organization has played a huge role in this campaign. And listeners who are interested in learning more about the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, or VANDU, should search for Talking Radical Radio and VANDU, V-A-N-D-U, and go to rabble.ca or talkingradical.ca to listen to the episode that we did on VANDU back in September of last year. I mean, that's just one example. There are countless organizations like that who are seeing this campaign as either speaking to a broader struggle or a deeper struggle, or even just in a very specific sense, concrete sense, extending some of their own work. As I mentioned, like Vandu, or maybe an anti-poverty organization, or Sanctuary Health, which is also working around Lincoln Chester. So we've done a lot of support, and we see this campaign as being a part of a broader struggle. You have been listening to my interview with Daniel Tsegai and Daniel Vexel of the Transportation Not Deportation campaign in Vancouver. To learn more about their work, go to transportationnotdeportation.wordpress.com. That's all one word, transportationnotdeportation.wordpress.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.